more I realized there is a part of that definition that needs to become true in all of our lives. It is not the part that you should be fearful. It is not the part that you've lost all hope. But it is the part that you lose all hope in your ability. That you lose all hope in man to make your life salvation ready. That you lose all hope in doing enough good deeds or going to enough good church services or just doing a few good things and, and thinking that that is what I need to follow after the Lord. I believe we're living in a day and an hour where we have got to become desperate for the move of God. We have got to become dead. Well, that means we've got to give up all hope of thinking we can manufacture or manifest a movement of God without the anointing. It doesn't come through our stage props. It doesn't come through our preaching. It doesn't come through our lights. It doesn't come through our activities and our events. It only comes through the anointing that is given to us by the Holy Ghost. Beautiful desperation. It's almost like an oxymoron. Desperation is not beautiful to the carnal eye. But somebody who is desperate for the Lord, somebody that sees an issue in our world, and someone that sets out to fight and to war in the battlefields in the valley of the shadow of death, amen, there's something that is beautiful about that. We love in funerals to quote, amen, the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How many have ever heard that quoted in church? How many have ever heard that quoted and it sounds exciting? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now imagine the 23rd Psalm had not yet been written and you're David. You've got to get so desperate that even when the valley is still out front of you, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear. When you get so desperate for the Lord, amen. When you get so desperate to see the will of God accomplished in your life, when you get so desperate to see your children saved, when you get so desperate to walk out, amen, in the salvation of the Lord, when you get so desperate, amen, to see laws begin to change, you're going to realize that your life becomes lesser important for your things and the life that God has for you becomes the most important thing. Amen. Come on. amen. I'm so thankful for the day that I lost hope in my ability to live a happy life. Without the Lord. Not everyone has made it to that point yet. But I'm so thankful because there have been moments in my life that I can truly testify with scripture. And say had it not been for the Lord who was on my side. Hallelujah. One particular subject that I'm sure most everyone in here has heard about over the last few days. Is the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Amen. I am thankful that we got church folks that clap to that. Amen. Because I was surprised at the amount of ministers and preachers that came out of the woodworks and talking about how this was not a good thing and that we need to pray for America. We was on the same category as China and, 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 and other places that have that have destroyed and killed families and, and children for the fact of political gain. We were somewhere, I understand that there are circumstances, situations, and 99% of people that want to come out and call this a bad thing are going to use that 2% of abortions, amen, that, that happened because of, 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 of a life problem with the mother or a life problem with the child or possibly both. They could possibly kill. But almost 98% of abortions are not 
are not done because there was a clinical problem. It's done because someone doesn't want the problem of a child. It's done because someone got in trouble. Someone was big enough to make a grown-up decision but ain't big enough to live with grown-up consequences. Amen. amen. That's the problem that we have in the day and the hour which we live. Amen. But we've had people, as a matter of fact, in January 22nd of 1973, that's when it was legalized. That a woman had the right to decide if a baby will have life on earth or not. But it wasn't put in those terminology. It was put into the terminology that a woman has a right to her own body. To say what happens in her own body. And I don't believe that that should ever be trampled upon. Because I do believe that a woman ought to have a right who she marries. I do believe that a woman ought to have a right where she goes to church. I do believe that a woman ought to have a right of how she raises her family. But I don't think a man nor a woman ought to possess the right to take the life of an unborn child. I don't believe a doctor ought to have the right to, to do a process to take the life of an unborn child just because someone doesn't want the problem. Doesn't want the headache. But for over half a century people have marched around courthouses. People have marched around the Capitol. People have walked up and down. People have even been slain because of their stance against this Roe versus Wade. Because they believed what it means. When, when Jeremiah tells us that God knew us from our mother's womb. Before I formed you in your mother's womb. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, I knew you. And I ordained you a prophet. In other words, God sees a living vessel at conception. But science has told us otherwise. The crazy part about it is a lot of times we talk about the word, people that don't know the word talk about the word contradicts itself. But yet we will take science at its value, at its face value. When science has contradicted itself since the beginning of time because science is only the knowledge of. And every time something new comes to knowledge, it changes science. Because science is only the knowledge of. And some of the greatest scientists in the world have even admitted to saying that out of a percentage of all the knowledge that could possibly be possessed about this world and this earth and this, and this origination and everything else, there is only a very small portion of knowledge understood. Which means, and they've even admittedly said this, which means there is a large portion of science that is yet to be learned, that is unlearned knowledge, that is yet to be discovered, that could hold the key to understanding that there was a God in the beginning, that God did create the heavens and the earth, and maybe there was a big bang when God said bang, and it happened. Even scientists have even mentioned that. But yet, we've allowed over the centuries and years of things to change off of our perspective as though God has humanity in his decisions. But as of June 24th, 2022, one of the greatest days I believe in Christian history was the day that started something new. And that was the day that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Do you know what got this started? A new science discovery. We've been saying it for 50 years. But a new science discovery. Got people that wasn't originally on board. On board. 
again, taking things at its value, at its face value. Which is why it is so important that we lose hope in our ability, in our knowledge, in our sophistication. And we place all of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You said you ever thought to yourself, what does it, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to walk out? What do I have to do to be blessed? What do I have to do to be highly favored in the kingdom of God? Jesus teaches us that in the book of Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You want to be blessed in the kingdom of God. You want to be blessed. You've got to become desperate. You've got to get to the place where it's no longer about the hope that you have in yourself. I love my parents, but I can't hope that my parents did good enough job to get me to heaven. I can't. I, I love my friends and my family, but I can't put my hope in my friends and in my family because they're going to fail me also. But if I can put my faith and in my hope in God, if I can become desperate enough to look out and search for the Lord, then when I enter the valley of the shadow of death, whether the 23rd Psalm has been written or not, then I have a, a, a Savior, I have a King on my side. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. One of the great prophets of today's time, Jim Carrey. <laughs> not really a prophet at all. But he did make a statement that I loved. He said, I don't think human beings learn anything without desperation. Desperation is a necessary ingredient to learning anything or creating anything. If you ain't desperate at some point, you ain't interested. Every person that's ever made an invention, every person that's ever created anything, every, any person that's ever started a movement had to be desperate enough to become interesting, had to be desperate enough to gain the attention. Amen. Azusa Street Revival became desperate enough to where it started gathering the attention of the rest of the United States and people, uh, people flowing in to there. There's even one testimony of a minister out of, a, out of state coming into the Azusa Street Revival and he said when he's on his way in, he looked towards the church and he said he's seen a fire. So he called 911 and said they dispatched uh, the fire trucks and everything. And when they got there, there was no fire. And the whole time this man's being told, it's on fire. And he's saying, no, sir, we got people on site. It's not on fire. He was, he was seeing in the spiritual realm, amen, the fire of God. Amen. Encompassed about something that got so desperate that said, we're going to put our vacations on hold for a little while. We're going to put our hobbies on hold for a little while. And we're going to come together. And we're going to pray. And we're going to fast. And we're going to seek God's face. And we're going to minister from his word. And as this thing grew, and as these desperate people came more and more desperate, and they pushed harder, and they pressed in even more and more and more to suddenly there was a national historical revival that took place and even to this day we're still reading testimonies of anything that you want to happen you've got to get to the place where you're desperate enough to 
do whatever it takes to get it. Desperation is not the problem. We have people desperate in this world for a lot of things. How many has ever heard the saying, desperate measures call for desperate, or desperate things call for desperate measures? Amen. You have people that will risk their life to come into your shed and get your tools for money. That's desperate. You've got people that are so lonely in a relationship, they'll come into your house with your spouse. That's desperate. You've got people that are so desperate to make money, they'll take your child and sell her as a tool. That's desperate. You've got people that will tell you anything that you need to hear to get your vote, but yet not follow through with promises. That's desperate. Their desperation is not the problem. It's being desperate for the right things that is. Are we desperate enough to do as Jesus said, be reviled and persecuted for righteousness? Are we desperate enough to stand out from the crowd and be a separate people? Are we desperate enough to be holy for he is holy? Are we desperate enough? I was, when I first got the call into ministry, it was easy because I'm in my hometown. I got family everywhere. I'm serving in the church that I, got, that I grew up in and got saved in. But as God began drawing me closer to my purpose and my calling, there was a separation beginning where I grew up. And about eight months of this went on until I realized that we were about to have to pack our entire family up. We were about to have to leave two great careers. And we were about to take two little babies all the way across the state where we didn't know anybody, we didn't have any friends, we didn't have any family other than a couple of pastors but we had gotten so desperate because we had gotten a taste of ministry and that excitement and seeing God move and then this separation period began and it got difficult it got hard and it got it got upsetting even at moments even to the point that we thought maybe we missed our call or we missed our opportunity or we don't even know what God's call is anymore we thought we knew and now it's just hard and difficult but we got so desperate. We started praying and we started fasting. And my wife, and I remember my wife coming to me and she, her, she told me, she said, Josh, I believe that the Lord is leading us to do this. What do you feel? And at that point, because of my fear, I was still relying on my hope. I had not become desperate enough yet. I said, it's, 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 it's just not the right time. It's not the right thing. I had a career. I actually had a career. We had two babies that were taken care of any day of the week. We could have, anything could have happened. We had family members on every corner. We're kidding everybody in Columbus. Me and Ashley's kidding. My marriage. She's my wife. We did have to check to make sure we wasn't kin when we started dating. We are, if she's not kin to him, I am. We're kin to everybody else. So we had somebody to watch the baby all the time. We could, I mean, it was easy for us to live life and do that. And I had a fear that all hope would be lost if I went that direction. 
But that's exactly what needed to happen. I needed to lose all hope in what I thought was provision. I needed to lose all hope on what I thought I needed. I needed to lose all hope on everything that I was going through so that when I stepped out in faith, that troubled waters couldn't compare to what I lost hope in. That, that troubled waters, that storm couldn't keep me from stepping out of the boat and keep moving. Can I tell you that when we did make that step a month later, I came back to my wife. I said, you're right. God has spoken to me. That is something we were supposed to do, and, and we've got to do it. And in one week, not only did we leave two careers, not only did we give our house away, not sell, give our house three acres away, but we moved three hours away to rent a little house in one of the roughest parts of the neighborhood, because that's all we could find. And I went to work for a prison as we started ministry to where I almost pulled my hair out. I lasted three weeks in a prison system. And then I, I left there. Before I could get home, I didn't have two different jobs. I got hired over the sheriff's department. Didn't find out I was going to be working in jail. And I said, no, I'm trying to get away from that. I, you know, and so I called him and said, I can't do that either. And then before I could even get home good, the guy that we were renting our house from owned the glass company. And he came to me and offered me a job. And for the next two and a half years, we grew in the Lord in a way that never would have happened in our whole town. Not because people there couldn't teach us, but because we had not yet been tried or tested. It was always somebody else we could call or somebody else. Could, that responsibility, that level of responsibility hadn't been challenged yet. And we was able to do it because of obedience. And I don't say that for any kind of pat on my back. What I'm trying to get you to see is when you become so desperate for the Lord, it's going to enhance your prayer life. When you become so desperate, for the Lord, it's going, to, it's going to enhance your church life. Amen. When you become so desperate for the Lord, it's going to enhance your family life. Amen. When you become so desperate for the Lord, it's going to get contagious. Amen. When people start seeing what God is doing because of your desperation, they're going to get desperate to see the same thing. Amen. Which is why I want to share with you for a few minutes this story. In, in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, it says, When Jesus was passed over again by ship to the other side. Much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh to the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now this is a man of high stature. This man was a ruler of the synagogue. That means this man had people that respected him. This man had people that if they found out he was thirsty, he wouldn't have to get up, they'd bring him something to drink. If he had something that needed to be done, they, he wouldn't have to get up, they'd get it done because they respected this man. And this man had led people. This man had read in the synagogues. This man had, had been there for people. He had been a leader for people and they could trust him. But, but now this man has found himself in a situation of desperate measure, if you will, a desperate situation. And now he, he, he's different than any other problem. This isn't like just somebody coming up to him in the church and saying, brother, I need some prayer. My back's been hurting me. Because I'm sure Jairus could handle issues like that. But he's found himself now in a circumstance and in a situation that has completely radicalized his life. And he's found himself in the thing that he cares the most about. His family, his daughter is right here. And the Bible says she was at the point of death. Jairus had to weigh a couple of options. If I, as a ruler and a leader of the synagogue, don't have faith, how can I preach faith? If I, as a ruler of the synagogue, run in fear and worry and, and try to make things happen myself, 
How will anyone ever know what they need to do? But when you got a desperate man in a desperate situation, he'll do desperate things. He didn't worry about his title in the synagogue. He wasn't worried about if he was going to get paid next week. He wasn't worried about if he was going to have to move out. He wasn't worried about if, if, the, if, the, if the weight of the issue of his taxes was going to be raised or if he was going to be chastised by the city for it. He didn't worry about any of that because he found himself in a desperate situation with problems that he couldn't fix. It was out of his hands. He was at the end of his rope. And the only thing he knew to do was to tie a knot at the end of his rope and hold on until he could get to Jesus. And the Bible says this ruler of the synagogue... He runs to Jesus and he falls before him. This is a man that people would fall before. This is a man that when he walked into a room, people would reverence his presence. People would reverence him because he was a ruler. He was a leader. He was one that was used to being bowed before. He was the one used to being robed. But now he has found himself in a desperate place, in a desperate situation. And he falls before his, on his face before Jesus. And he tells him the situation. You've got to come lay hands on my daughter because she is at the point of death. You've got to get to the place where you get so desperate that you'll run out of your titles. You'll run out of your expectancies. You'll quit worrying about what people are going to say about you. People are going to think about you. How people are going to put you down. How they're going to call you names. And they're going to ridicule you. And they're going to call you a holier than thou. They're going to call you an uppity person. Whatever they want to call you, let them call you. Because when your baby is laying on that altar, receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it'll make everything you push through worth it child that you lead to Christ every brother or sister that you lead to Christ it will be a blessing on your life Amen. and in your life but it doesn't just happen because you wake up one day and say well my schedule is clear till 11 I'll talk to people about Jesus no there's going to take some desperate it's going to take some desperate measures things that's going to get you out of your comfort zone but now Going back to the story, you have this man, Jairus, he's laying before Jesus. He says, my daughter's at the point of death. I need you to come lay hands on her. Jesus said, take me to her. And the Bible says they start walking. They're just walking. The disciples are around him. The, the Bible says that the crowds are throwing him. And meaning they're all bumped into him. It's just shoulder to shoulder. They're tight. The press, the crowd, they're walking. But before the story of Jairus continues, another character falls on the scene. It says, and then there was a certain woman. Does anybody know who this woman's name is? Me neither. All my life in church, all I've ever heard is the woman with the issue of blood. A certain woman. So now you've got two total polar opposite characters. You've got one by Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He's a big man. He, he, he's a ruler. And, he, and now he's bowed before Jesus. And now you've got this certain woman with an issue of blood. She's the nobody. She's never ruled anything for 12 years. She couldn't come in the temple for 12 years. She was considered unclean for 12 years. She couldn't come to women's meetings for 12 years. She couldn't vote in church for 12 years. She couldn't step up and have a voice for 12 years. She couldn't have a right to have an abortion for 12 years. She didn't have a voice in anything and everything. She was unclean everywhere she went. She was the poor side of the tracks. She was from the nobodies. She was from the misfits, the outfits, and the no fence. She was way over there. This woman having an issue of blood for 12 years. 
The Bible says that she had been to many doctors. She had been to soothsayers. She had, she had spent everything she had ever earned. Everything that had ever been left to her. Everything that she had ever owned. The Bible says she had spent everything and it didn't get better. It only got worse. Imagine. Or maybe some of you have been there. You've been battling a situation. You've been dealing with an infirmity. You've been just taking everything you've got. Or you're going through a problem or a situation. And it's taking everything you've got to stay afloat. Everything you've got. Have you, has it just been? Has anybody else ever been there? Amen. Have you ever just been to the place where you don't feel like you can get your head above the water? Amen. You get $10 and somebody asks you for 12 Amen. You work 10 hours and you owe for about 12 Amen. It's almost like you just paint, you leave, you work to breathe because you can't do anything else. This woman for 12 years had no hope. She put her hope in doctors and the doctors came short. She put her hope in soothsayers, hoping they could mix up some kind of formula, pour it over her head, boil it in acid, and then be gone. They still wanted their payment, but they couldn't produce an answer. Everything she had ever had was gone, and she's only in a worse state now. Not only the issue of blood, but imagine someone coming to you and telling you because of your sickness that you can't help, you can't come into church. This is a place for holiness. We're going to have a women's meeting this evening. And we're going to talk about some events coming up for our women. No, ma'am, you can't come. You're nasty. So she's dealing with emotional trauma on top of physical trauma. This woman, nothing she had ever done wrong put her in the place that she was at. But because of the Levitical law, she is considered unclean. These people would have been breaking the law to let her in. So now she's dealing with an emotional Why was I born like this? Why do I feel like this? Why? And she, I imagine depression crept in and she felt like her life would be better gone. The world would be better if she wasn't in it. I can just imagine the things that went on in her mind. She was desperate in every faucet of her life. She didn't have means to make, to, to make ends meet. She didn't have a job. She couldn't call the church to pray for her. She couldn't get the elders of the church to come to her house and anoint her house. She couldn't go to doctors. They wasn't helping her. Everything she had, she lost hope in. But then she heard Jesus was coming through. And the Bible says when she heard that the, there was noise that Jesus was in the area. The Bible says, I don't know if she put on some kind of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She dressed up and covered her face so people wouldn't know who she was. A veil. A veil. Maybe she dressed up like somebody else. But we're, I don't know because I'm sure that for 12 years if this woman had been going through, people probably knew her face. People probably knew who she was. You know how protective of Jesus the disciples were. They were so protective of Jesus, Jesus had to steadily chastise them. As though Jesus, as though they were Jesus' Savior. You know, that people, blind men, were trying to call out to Jesus. They say, shut up, don't bother Jesus. Lame man with leprosy come running up. Get back, you diseased man. Don't touch Jesus. So I can imagine when this, what was going through this woman's mind when she was waiting on her opportunity to get to Jesus. Will somebody stop me before I get there? 
Will somebody get in my way? Will somebody throw me out before I ever get to touch Jesus? So I don't know what all this woman had to go through, but I can tell you she was desperate. She was desperate because the Bible says that when, the, when, when, when Jesus was passing by, that this woman had to push through the crowd. So I don't know if she was on her knees crawling under people, over people, bumping into people, being pushed and shoved and slapped and spit upon or whatever. But when, when she got to where she wanted to be, she touched the hem of his garment. And immediately the, the woman knew she had been healed. See, desperate measures Desperate things call for desperate measures. There are so many people today that would advise that woman, you need to be a little bit more sophisticated about your approach. You need to be a little bit more sophisticated about how you're going to do things. You need to be a little bit more uppity about how you approach. But this woman had done everything she knew to do. And she would, I, if I was this woman, I would love to know that she would just look at these people and say, until you've walked a mile in my shoes, stay a mile out of my business. Until you've walked where I've walked and been through what I've been through and fought the hell that I've had to fight and deal with the devils I've had to deal with and go through the family problems I've had to go. My mama won't talk to me. My daddy won't talk to me. My kids can't be around me. Amen. I can't go to church anymore. I can't do anything. I'm so desperate right now. And the best thing for you to do is to get out of my way until I get to Jesus. Amen. But we have so many people. They're so limited by what people think. Well, if I do this, I'm not going to be cool anymore. Well, if you keep doing what you're doing, you won't be cool for much longer because it's hot in hell. If I, if I do this, I'm going to lose my reputation. The Bible only gives two types of reputations. Either you're for God or you're against him. And sometimes it takes getting so desperate that you find yourself doing what you thought you'd never do. Crawling on a dirty floor. Pushing through a crowd to touch the hem of a garment. This woman didn't even think, I'm not even going to bother Jesus. I'm nobody to get in the way of Jesus, but if I could just touch his threads of his clothes. I believe I'll be healed. The Bible says when she touched the hem of his garment, then Jesus stopped and he said, who touched me? For I felt virtue, dunamis power. Somebody touched me that was so desperate that they got past doctor's power. Somebody touched me that had gotten so desperate, amen, that their faith had rose up. That just by touching the hem of my garment, it pulled something from heaven through me. It pulled something holy through me into their life. Who touched me? How many have ever heard that old song? He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And all oh, the joy that fills, floods my soul, fills my soul. Something. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Jesus asked the question. He sung the song. Who touched me? Who touched me? The Bible says when he turned around, this woman was afraid. So instead of making it some big thing, she started making her way to Jesus. But before she could get there, the disciples, <coughs> the all-knowing disciples, the church folks, said, Jesus, what a ridiculous thing to ask. Here we are walking with Jay Iris and all these people all around, and you don't ask who touched you. 
I'm telling the story, so I'm going to tell it like I like it. Because the Bible doesn't clarify how Jesus responded. But I like to think that Jesus said, I appreciate the input of all of you holy little minions that are so righteous and pure that you can make me doubt what I'm talking about. But if you'll give me just a minute, something different happened in this touch. Somebody was so desperate that it shifted their atmosphere. Somebody was so desperate that it changed their entire life. Somebody was so desperate that they did something unspeakable, unthinkable. And when they did it, it changed everything that they had ever dealt with for the last 12 years. And this woman looks. Remember, she's the unclean nobody. And she says, tells them the truth. I touched you. And when I touched you, Jesus, the blood dried up. See, this woman, why was this woman so desperate? The Bible tells us in Leviticus, when it tells us that we can't eat any meat with blood in it, it tells us that blood is the life of the living being. The blood is the life. So if I eat the blood of an animal, I am eating that life. I am taking that Life into I'm consuming that life into myself. And a lot of people think, well, now you can't eat a medium rare steak. First off, if it's truly processed meat, go do a study that ain't blood coming out of your steak. Number one. Number two, the blood, the things that they were doing in, in those days are horrific. We don't want to talk about them in church because it's too gory and it sounds too bad. And we don't want visitors hearing about that, you know, because. It's in the Bible for a reason. It's probably good that we teach it. It's probably good that people have knowledge of. I know it's gore, but so is the cross. And people need to know what it took to pay for our sins so that we don't continue living in our sins. How many of you people are going to go buy an $85,000 truck today, drive it into the parking lot, and let the kids throw rocks at it? Because it's valuable to you. That's a whole lot of money for somebody to get around swinging a bat and throwing rocks. You see your kids out there hitting a the baseball towards you, brand new truck. What you gonna go out there and do? Ooh, but they're just having fun. They're just kids being kids. That's the mentality of the crucifixion. It's just a cheap thing, you know. It's, we can have fun. God just wants us to have fun in our life. No, He wants us to be so desperate that we deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after Him. Because the cross of Calvary is gory. The cross of Calvary was painful. The cross of Calvary suffered so much loss, more loss than just life. For the first time in all of eternity, which is why I believe in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' capillaries burst in His skin to where He bled through His sweat pores. I don't believe he was sweating blood because he was worried about getting beaten. I don't believe he was sweating blood because he was worried about the cross. Um, think about it. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus was about to be separated from his father. Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why hast thou forsaken me? He took on the sin of the world and his father had to turn his back because the word tells us God cannot look upon sin. That's, right. That's why Jesus was so worried. But he was so desperate for you and I that he was willing to go through whatever hell he had to go through to get us back into saving grace, to get us back. Because no blood of a ram, no blood of an ox, no blood.
blood of a lamb would ever suffice or be good enough to get us into, into heaven. But it just bought us time on the day of atonement until the Messiah would come, who was the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. He was so desperate for you and I. And then I got, as I was studying this, as, as I get ready to wrap this up, musicians, if you want to make your way this way. As I was studying this, and, it, and just something just didn't sit right. I want, I want to kind of tell you how my, how my mind works when I study. We start out hearing about Jesus passing over, and then this man, Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, comes. But before we can finish Jairus' story, we stop and we start talking about this certain woman with an issue of blood. This certain woman with an issue of blood. And I, I knew there was something of importance to it. So I started digging in. And I realized that this woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. The Bible tells us. For 12 years she had an issue of blood. Mark chapter 5 verse 42 tells us that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So from the moment that this woman who came from nothing, who nobody knew, started having this flow of blood in her life that, that, that made her unclean and, 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 and made her unpure. For 12 years she struggled going through this thing while at the same time, around the same point of her getting sick, this new baby was introduced into the world in a ruler's home. She was always taken care of. She never had to be desperate for anything. She didn't know what it meant to have to struggle. She didn't know what it meant to be in need. She didn't know what it meant to have to go through problems. She didn't know what it would mean to really truly have to sacrifice. And then I was led to the book of Titus chapter 2. Verse 3 through 5, we put it up. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands and to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And I said, Lord, what are you trying to show me right here? What are you trying to show me? You've got this woman with an issue of blood who, who, who's for 12 years she's been dealing for this. But for every moment of her destruction, this little girl was growing up in a ruler's home. Amen. This young girl was growing up and, 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 and going and, and just not having any troubles or any problems. You've got one woman on the side of the spectrum. She's having to struggle every second and every day of her life. This other little girl is growing up and she's not having to go through anything because she's in the ruler's house. But right at the moment of the last becoming first, the first was becoming last. This woman of, 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 no, of nowhere, nobody, no importance, was coming to a place that because of her desperation, she was about to be cured. But on this other side of the spectrum, this young girl that had been growing up under her daddy's leadership and as a ruler of the synagogue, would never need anything was about to need everything because her life was on the line. Then it just kind of dawned on me 
nothing different about this woman who nobody knew and this man who everybody knew. When they both ran out of hope, when they both ran out of desire, when they both had any neither had any answers, they both ran to the same place. His name was Jesus. And they meet together and they come together. And then God showed me Titus. And he said, listen, before I can teach the younger generation, I'm going to need the older generation to remember where they came from and everything they had to fight through so that the little 12-year-olds that get their life back can be led. Amen. That they be that they do not blaspheme the word of God. Will you stand all over the house this morning? Beautiful desperation. There's nothing beautiful about this woman with the issue of blood. There's nothing beautiful about a little 12-year-old girl laying on her deathbed fighting for her life. But there's nothing more beautiful than the result of the story we get when we hear Jesus come out saying, the woman with the issue of blood we know the story. She was healed, and Jesus looked at her and he said, Daughter, go in faith. Go in peace. Thy faith hath made thee whole. About that time, here came somebody from Jairus' house and said, Don't bother him any longer, Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Imagine being this rich ruler. You came to Jesus. He's on his way to heal your daughter. And this unclean nobody comes up and stalls him just long enough for your daughter to die. How desperate do you got to be to let Jesus come on to your house anyway when your daughter's already dead? If there was any inkling of hope in Jairus' heart that she was going to be okay, the final report, your daughter is dead, squashed it. Jesus said, I'll go. Take me to your daughter. When he gets there, back in those days, when a family would lose someone, they would hire mourners. In other words, people would get paid to come to your funeral and cry. When Jesus walks into the room, the Bible says they're all crying. And he asked this question. He said, why are you weeping? For your daughter is not dead. She's only asleep. Now they got paid to cry. But the Bible says they started laughing in Jesus' face. And Jesus said he had them, the Bible says Jesus had them put out. If you'll go study that word, I want y'all, this is for all you people that always utilize, you got to be a bigger Christian. We know the story about Jesus flipping over tables and chairs, right? If you'll go study the phrase in Greek, had them put out, that means forcefully with hands applied. Now, I ain't saying they beat them. I ain't saying they gave a five finger discount across their cheeks. But I'm telling you, they didn't have time to re re refrain. Somebody put hands on them and put them out of that room because they were getting in front of a desperate.
desperate situation. They were getting in the way of a desperate situation. I paid you to cry, and here you are laughing at, at, at someone speaking life. We're living in a dead hour where people are laughing every day. But why, are, why do they feel okay to laugh? It's not that they're evil people. It goes back to this Roe versus Wade situation. For 50 years, the church has been fighting against abortions. But now, church, the ball is in our court. Everybody that's been holding them signs up, everybody that's been rebuking abortions, what are we going to do now? When pregnant mamas walk through the doors, and they don't feel like they know what they're doing. They don't feel like that. Are we going to be a place that offers some of the greatest adoption agencies now? Are we we got a ball in our court. We've been running our mouth for 50 years. Are we desperate enough to see a change now? Are we, we got what we wanted from the courts. Will we establish something that's going to allow for babies? We got to preach just saying we care about the babies in the womb. We got to carry on from the womb to the tomb. In other words, even after they're born, are we offering things for them? We want every baby to be born. What are we going to do about homeless children? What are we going to do about divorced parents and children going up without mamas and daddies? I'm not going to, I'm not, you will never in a million years hear this pastor. I love you with all my heart, but I'm going to tell you straightforward. You will never in a million years convince me that killing an unborn baby is okay. But you'll never convince me in a million years that once that baby is born, it ain't our problem anymore. Amen. If we're going to fight to see them born, let's fight to see them live. Let's fight to see them have a life. We've got to get desperate enough to see a change in our culture. We've got to get desperate enough to see things unravel, things happen. And it's going to take stepping out front, pushing through the crowd, being called names and ridicule until we can touch the hem of the garment of Jesus so that a 12-year-old girl might get life and a 12-year deficit might be recovered. But whatever's going on, I promise you, if we'll get desperate enough, Jesus has an answer. But see, some of you are here this morning and maybe your situation ain't as big as going through 12 years like that woman did. Or maybe your situation ain't as bad as going through a child laying on her deathbed. But can I tell you that if you're going through anything that's hurting your heart, that's attacking your body. That's hurting your family. That's keeping you from serving the Lord in your ministry. If there's anything, I don't care how little or how big it is, it matters to God. Amen. There is no scale in the Bible that says it has to be this bad before you can be desperate. I'm going to share a testimony of my wife right quick. She would probably kill me. But my second son was born. I told you the testimony. He, lost, he was stuck in the birth canal for eight minutes, lost oxygen to his brain, died. They told us if he lived, which was a slight chance, but if he lived, he'd be a vegetable. 
But to get him out of my life, I think they measured only up to a third degree tear. For women, Sister Marie, you might help me on that. They, the doctor told us that the worst of tears don't mount to what she had. Because they, they became desperate to get that baby out. I ain't trying to be gory, but I want to kind of just show you. It was so bad. Now, I wasn't here for my first son's birth. So this is my first son's birth. Like, I, I missed the first This is the first time I've watched a child be born. And it wouldn't have hurt my feeling if it would have been the last. So my heart goes out to you nurses that, that can do that. But there was blood on the wall behind her. On the ceiling tile. In the floor. Everywhere. It looked like we was on a murder scene. There was blood everywhere. Because once that baby got stuck, they went into another gear. There were people on top of my wife pushing her and she was passing out, trying to push. They finally got the baby. They just rushed away from her and started dealing with the baby. Two days later, I believe it was, they was, they was releasing my wife. My son was still in NICU. So we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house, right there outside the hospital. But my pastor at the time called us and said, we've got men and women from all over the community that want to come to the church for a prayer meeting. We're going to pray for you guys. I said, thank you so much. I got off the phone and told my wife about it. She can't walk. I told my wife about it. She said, we're supposed to be there. So what do you mean? She said, we got to get there. So at 10 o'clock at night, I'm loading her. She can't hardly walk. I'm loading her into a car. And we drive 40 miles to a church where this prayer meeting's going on. We walk in and prayer meeting's already started. They're just praying. And my wife is, is, is carried up to the front and they start praying for her. And before it, it you know, before anything shifted or changed, it's almost like you felt, like she said earlier, something shifted in the room or release happened. And about that time, she stood up on her feet and danced all across the front of that church. And she laid down to the floor and she just rolled across that sanctuary, praying and speaking in tongues and, and just giving glory to God. We were told that he wouldn't be released from the hospital until January the 20th. Oh, February the 20th, I'm sorry. Around February the 20th is when they were projecting his release date to be from NICU. He was born on December 19th. The prayer meeting happened December 22nd. If he lives, he'll be a vegetable. Can I tell you that on Christmas Eve morning, we woke up and we packed our little baby boy up in a car seat while he was cooing and a smiling. And we drove all the way home. And we got to celebrate Christmas at our house as a family. He was released. And to this day, Alex Toomey, that runs around in here, all over the place, amen, he was a miracle. But I'm so thankful for beautiful desperation. Because science, I don't blame the doctors one bit. Everybody said I should have sued the doctor because she should have done a C-section. She followed her training. Everything she did, she did by her knowledge. And I would never hold that woman accountable. It was just a freak accident. 
Well, he measured out to be around seven pounds by measuring her. And I specifically asked, should we do another ultrasound? She just seems bigger than last time. And I had to say it to the doctor. I couldn't say it to her. She said, no, everything's good. She was confident that happened. He was nine pounds, two ounces. You know, I wasn't going to share this part, but I'm going to share it with you because I believe it'll help somebody. Everybody had a legitimate argument on why we should sue. God had done too much in my life in a short period of time for me to worry about suing somebody. That woman, for three years straight, sent him a birthday present and a Christmas present every year because it was right there together. Until she retired. Even had one tell us they talked to a lawyer and said we was looking at about a two million dollar lawsuit. Just couldn't do it. One year later, my son preaching my first revival. My son goes into a coma. We take him to the hospital and find out he has a rare case of hydrocephalus. Find out that his insurance had lapsed and it wouldn't be picking back up for two weeks and he needed immediate brain surgery. We told him to go ahead and do the brain surgery. We'll worry about the rest later. We prayed. They done the brain surgery $2.4 million. Five brain surgeries. But it wasn't five at that time, I think it was three. $2.4 million. Just shortly after the brain surgery, we get a letter in the mail. That said, we would like to inform you that basically telling us that the reason that the insurance lapse was not on our part. And because of that, his, his surgery was the first week of August, and they said his insurance wouldn't pick up to the second week of August. We got a letter saying that they were going to backdate his insurance to August the 1st. And it covered $2.4 million of expenses. So when I come to tell you, if you'll get desperate for God, the whole world has got an opinion of what's best for you and what you need to do. But if you listen for the Lord and be desperate for God, be desperate for God alone, people are going to call it ironic. People are going to call you crazy. People are going to, I even wrote a song about this, amen? It's a little rap song. Maybe Chris will rap it for y'all one day when you get a chance. But, but, but it's called insanity. People will call you insane, but if you're insane for God, the world is always going to think you're insane. But I'm telling you, there ain't nothing that compares. So as we get ready to pray this morning, this morning, afternoon, whatever you're going through, are you willing to get desperate enough to push through the crowd this morning? Are you willing to be so desperate to lay everything else aside and say, Lord, I need your touch. I need your touch. And can I tell you, the Bible tells you, God is faithful and just will do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or even think. All you have to do is be like that woman. Be willing to push through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment. Or be like Jairus and say, you know what? I don't care about my title. I don't care about if I, I lose my rulership. I don't care. My daughter is the most important thing to me right now. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to push. I'll fall before Jesus Christ. Whatever I got to do, but I want to see my daughter healed. 
Are you desperate this morning for anything? I'm going to ask them. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask them to sing us a song. And if you have any need this morning, these altars are going to be open. If you come down, we'll pray with you. But I'm believing if you'll be desperate enough, God is always faithful enough. Amen. Most gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you prepare older generations so that when our younger generations go through things, that there's always somebody to teach the next generation the truth of your gospel. Lord, that's why we believe your word remains in error because, God, there's always that woman with the issue of blood that can tell the younger woman, the Jairus' daughter, no, this is what Jesus did for me. So, God, I'm asking you right now, Lord, grant courage to anyone in this room today that desires to come forth, Lord. Maybe they're dealing with guilt. Maybe they're dealing with shame. Maybe they're dealing with fear right now, Lord God. You grant them the courage. May allow them to become so desperate, God, that they break every barrier and every wall to get down to this altar to touch your garment. Father, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. These altars are open as they worship.